Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. All right, guys. Here we are. Chapter 6. Chapter 6. Oh, chapter 5. You guys were like, oh, no, did I? What happened? <laughs> this is, I, I have my lessons titled... Um, with numbers, but I don't have them corresponding to the chapters. That's my mistake. I had our introduction week, which is chapter one, so I'm a, my numbers are ahead a week, so my bad. Chapter five. We're in chapter five, Belshazzar. Um, well, first off, let's do some recap, okay? Let's talk a little bit about what we talked about last week. Nebuchadnezzar, right? The guy we've been talking about, king of Babylon, uh, had an experience, right? He had a dream. And ultimately, it pointed him to the Most High God, and he wanted every single person to know about it. He wanted every single person in the Babylonian kingdom to hear about his uh, discovery, his revelation of the Most High God, and the fact that this is the God that possesses kingdoms, that this is the God whose dominion endures from forever and ever, from age to age. Um, and really, his experience began with a dream, Right? Um, so the fact that he's even telling us the dream is kind of interesting because it ultimately ends up being a kind of a negative omen towards himself. Uh, but what ends up happening, right, is uh, he allows Daniel to come and interpret the dream. And we, we see that they have a, a relationship, one in which not only is Nebuchadnezzar okay um, for Daniel to tell him the dream um, in the sense that he knows that it's bad for him, but also in the sense that Daniel doesn't want to tell Nebuchadnezzar the dream because of how bad it's going to be for Nebuchadnezzar. Well, it ends up coming true. What happens is Nebuchadnezzar loses his kingdom. God gives him the mind of an animal. He's pushed out into the wilderness for, for you know, seven times. Uh, and we don't really know what that is. Maybe seven years. We'll go with that. Uh, for, so, so for seven years, he's pushed out into the wilderness and he's given the mind of a beast until finally he looks toward the heavens and God restores his reason. God restores his understanding. And in doing so, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is brought back into the kingdom, back into his authority, back to his power and his reign. And instead of glorifying himself, he then turns and glorifies God. He glorifies the Most High God. And so uh, we made the, the speculation that we think that, at least I did, I made the speculation that I think that Nebuchadnezzar probably became at least uh, to the capacity that he could a believer in Yahweh. That's my, that's my take on it. Um, but the whole point, ultimately, is that Nebuchadnezzar, who once stood against God, who once was trying to kill um, anybody who didn't bow down to specific statues and idols and, and who was trusting in his own sorcery, sor- sorcerers and enchanters and Chaldeans and all these, all these people groups that he's, be- that he's bringing before him, this is now someone who has turned to the Most High God. At least in some capacity, it's, it's remarkable that he, would abandon, um, that he would abandon Marduk, who he once saw as the Most High God, and now is ascribing that to somebody else. At, at, very minimum, at, ver- at the very least, this is a remarkable thing. A remarkable thing. So, tonight we're going to jump into chapter 5, but I want to pray for us. Because uh, what I say won't mean much if the Holy Spirit doesn't help me, and, uh, the Holy, and it won't mean much to you guys if the Holy Spirit doesn't help you. So, let's pray together. Father God, uh, we are so thankful for your word. As always, we are grateful that we can study it in a place like this, knowing that we are free to do so, knowing that uh, we have no fear in doing so. 
And so, Father, we pray that we never take it for granted. Uh, but, Lord, we also pray, God, that you would just really open up our eyes to your wisdom, to your power, to the fact that you are in control. And for those that are in this room who are in seasons of trial or just confusion, uh, Father, I pray that they are able to put their trust and rest in you, Father, knowing that you truly are a God who is present in the fire. Father, we pray that you would continue to be with those, God, who, um, who are just continuing to search for, for answers, God, uh, to see and understand if you really are this God who is powerful. God, we pray that you would reveal that to them. God, we pray for those of us who maybe have fallen back into, into places of complacency. God, maybe we just feel stuck in our faith. Lord, I pray that your spirit urges us on because we know that you've given us one of power and love and discipline. Father, not one that is, is uh, characterized by fear, but instead it, it completely t- throws that out. Father, I pray for those who are just feel like they're in a, an amazing position with you. Father, they're, they feel close with you. And Father, I pray that they would be an encouragement to those who, who don't. But God, that we would all see that your presence uh, is never different, whether we are in seasons of trial or in seasons of joy. And God, that this book would continue to be an encouragement to us as we just uh, truly enjoy you, Father, and glorify you, knowing that, uh, as a wise preacher once said, Father, you, uh, you're, you are most glorified in us uh, when we are most satisfied in you. And Father, we pray that you would continue to help us to lean into that tonight. Father, we pray for your spirit that it would just be at work. And it's in your son's name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, guys. Chapter 5. So I'm going to read through the first 12 verses. Um, oh, by the way, that piece of paper that you guys got, that's just simply for notes or for doodlers. I didn't have any handouts tonight, so uh, Lindsay, she's the one who does all the printing, so thank you, Lindsay. She's awesome. Uh, but she said that she was just going to print off a, a blank sheet of paper for you. So I know everybody who thought it was going to be a test, you can now take a breath. Um, so it's just a paper for, for you to write on. So, all right. So chapter 5. Verse 1 through 12. Let's set up the scene of this text. This is what it says. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then... They brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. 
In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. All right, so let's talk about this a little bit. Uh, Some really interesting things. I want to talk about Belshazzar first off, because he's kind of a very interesting character. And actually, even when we get into chapter 6 and we start talking about Darius, there are some similar things that are going to be happening. But first and foremost, Belshazzar. This is obviously the first time we're transitioning now to a new king of Babylon. But specifically, the reason why this king is, is interesting to us is because... Um, up until the 19th century, we had no record of him at all. No record of all. No record of all. No record at all. And so what many people thought, uh, you know, especially you know, scholars and, and historians reading this book, is that this was actually a mistake on the part of Daniel, whoever wrote this book, because they included this king of Babylon that we know never existed. Well, unfortunately, that proved wrong in the 19th century when we discovered, when we discovered um, some new archaeological finds. The, these, these certain Babylonian chronicles. And really, I think it's like over 37, uh, over 30, really, uh, cuneiform tablets that ultimately they attested to this man in history, Belshazzar. And that's, which is pretty crazy. I mean, we're, we're talking about, um, since this book, what we believe was written, you know, in around 600 or 500 B.C., right? From 500 B.C. all the way up until the 1800s, we didn't know who Belshazzar was through history, um, at least until we, we discovered these tablets. And of course, this becomes meaningful because the people who said that this guy never existed, that this was made up, well, that kind of puts the kibosh on that a little bit. And actually, what we begin to see is we've talked about these historians before, so I want to say them again for you. The first one's Herodotus and Xenophon. And then there's a third one as well called Barassus. And he himself is a Neo-Babylonian priest, but also a historian, um, writing in around the 300 area B.C. Herodotus and Xenophon were writing in around the 5th and 4th century B.C. Okay, so these are pretty, you know, they're, they're pretty close to the events. They're not quite a writing when all of these things are happening, but they're fairly close. And they never mentioned Belshazzar. They never mentioned Belshazzar. So we, we, they, we were, were really relying on them for a lot of information about um, what we know of the Babylonian Empire. And so uh, what, what, the, what happens is, it, which is good, great for us, it's great for our case, who, those of us who believe that this book was written um, when it says it was in 500 B.C., is that if there's no historical document ever saying that this guy existed, and, and, uh, uh, basically until that chronicle, um, that it would be really, really hard for someone in the second century B.C., which is when, you know, the people who believe that, you know, prophecies can't happen, they believe that this book was probably written in because they would have written all the events after things have, had, had happened, you know. Uh, they're looking at this book and saying, essentially, if we're, well, if we're, if we're talking about a guy who no other writer, uh, no other historian mentioned, but that now it comes to light in this chronicle that's from way before, it's really hard to make the argument that this book was written in, two, in 200 B.C., uh, or the 2nd century B.C., I should say. Does that make sense? So it's really, it's helpful for our case that this came to light. Now, when we talk about Darius, we'll kind of come back to this idea, because Darius is another person that 
um, we don't know from history. Uh, that we have no, we don't really know um, who he is at this point. We'll talk about that more. People have some speculations about who he might be. Um, but just kind of a, a note about history in general. As, as helpful as it is, it is so much guesswork. You know, Really what we're doing is we're taking all the documents we possibly have and we're trying to piece together what happened in the past. But that becomes really hard when the amount of documents we have to do so are so limited. You know, we, we don't realize how much we really have right now, the accessibility that we have, the amount of people writing histories from their own perspectives and, and their own biases. And so when we try to get these historical documents and piece together things that happened in the past, we just don't always have a clear picture. And so it's funny when we, when we discover things like this because we're like, oh, this guy did exist. So my bad, everybody. <laughs> this guy did exist. But I do want to talk about him a little bit because there's some controversy still surrounding him. As far as we know, even in the Chronicles that came about, he's never listed as a king. He's never listed as a king in the history of uh, the Neo-Babylonian Empire. So why does Daniel mention him one here? Well, there's an explanation for that. And it's because the actual king that was reigning at this time that people would have known was, went by the name uh, Nabonidus. Which I think if you guys look in your resources that I handed out, uh, I think it was... Three weeks ago, um, I gave you one that had all like the Neo-Babylonian dynasty on there. And so you can kind of actually look at that list, and you're going to see Belshazzar's not on there. Um, and it's because the guy who was actually reigning was Nabonidus. That was the king of the Neo-Babylonian Empire before it became defeated by uh, the Medo-Persian Empire. And so um, what we come to find out through these chronicles, through these archaeological discoveries, is that Belshazzar was Nabonidus' son. So why does Daniel refer to him as king? Well, it's because Nabonidus, um, for whatever reason, we don't actually know, um, just from the historical documents that we have, we don't know, but he essentially spent um, about 10 years of his 17-year reign in a different city called Tamiya. And it's, it's quite a bit further south. And what a lot of people start to believe about Nabonidus is actually he was a, a huge um, advocate of archaeological discovery. And so we, th- we think that he may have gone down there to basically work um, to help discover. Well, he did a couple of things. He was trying to set up the temple of the moon god uh, scene, but he was also trying to... Um, dig up new archaeological discoveries that he knew had been buried there from the past, from, uh, some, from Assyria. And then in addition to that, there was also some major trade routes that went through there. So perhaps he was trying to build a city there as well that could help um, basically um, create wealth. So that's a couple ideas. But think about that. For 10 years, this guy's not in Babylon. This, this guy's not reigning in the, the capital of the empire. And so who will reign? Belshazzar. And so most people see Belshazzar as almost a co-regent. He is reigning alongside of Nabonidus. Um, and so Daniel's kind of refers to him as the king, because if you are thinking of it through Daniel's eyes, it's Daniel's experiencing the life of Belshazzar uh, for 10 years as really the reigning authority within Babylon at the time. And so that's kind of how that connection is made between seeing how Belshazzar has really become the ruler at this point. And we have a couple different... Well, I'll, I'll save that in a, in a bit. But what's also interesting is that it notes that Belshazzar is the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and you'll kind of see that throughout the book. And there's a lot of different theories for why this might be. One of the theories is that he actually is a son of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and, and let me back up and kind of set up the context for you. So Nebuchadnezzar 
um, gave birth to a son who we talked about last week. Jeremiah mentions actually his name is Evil Marduk. That was the successor of, of Nebuchadnezzar. And then after him uh, came Neraglissar. And then after him came his son, which I believe it's pronounced uh, Lamesh Marduk. And then after that came Nabonidus. Now, oh, I'm sorry. I messed that up. Because uh, no, no, I didn't. That is right. Nereglesar, uh, yes, uh, he is the son of, of Nereglesar. So Nabonidus is the last king that we have, right? So Nabonidus came to power through actually a coup. He came to power because he ripped it away. He's not a part of Nebuchadnezzar's family, but he did serve as one of Nebuchadnezzar's chief officers. And so that's how this kind of this this story, this family, this dynasty is kind of interrelated. So it's very possible that. Uh, Belshazzar was actually related to um, Nebuchadnezzar in this way. We don't actually know. We're kind of we're speculating at this point. So it's possible that he was actually Nebuchadnezzar's son. It's possible that um, he, he is simply a successor of Nebuchadnezzar. And so in the sense of how a dynasty is viewed, he's, he's viewed not in the sense as a literal son, but as a successor. We see that even if you look at the story of Elijah and Elisha, um, they use that son and father language. We see this actually in the um, Cambyses and uh, Cyrus, which are the Persian they're they're both Persian kings uh, and they're not related and yet they're they're viewed as son and father so that's another thing that's probably what honestly I I would I would probably speculate that probably has the best evidence because the other evidence we don't really know but we do know this Nebuchadnezzar was king Belshazzar was king later on so that successor predecessor type of role makes the most sense to me Um, but certainly those other ones have validity as well so anyways, the reason I'm explaining all this is because really this is a topic that there is no um, complete conclusion on. You know, there's no, there's no agreement across the board on. Belshazzar is a very hard figure to nail down because, again, it wasn't until the 19th century that we even discovered he did actually exist, uh, that we have found his name in, in other historical records. And so there's so much about his life that we don't know. But this story becomes really interesting for a lot of different reasons, but primarily because of this crazy feast that this guy's having, okay? So check it out. This feast is gigantic. Uh, I want to say, yeah, in the, in the first verse, he says that Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank, and drank wine in front of a thousand. And actually, um, from my research, a couple of scholars say, you know, from what they've um, begun to understand is actually this feast, these feasts are very um, common, uh, that we can, Alexander the Great has a feast like this. There was many Persians, uh, Persian kings who, who had feasts like this. And so what we actually, in Herodotus and Xenophon as well, actually attest to the fact that um, Babylon, Babylonia had these, these just gigantic feasts. And the king would put them on. But the interesting thing is that the king wouldn't usually come to the feast. He would, he would be a part of it. He would drink. He would eat. But he, actually, he wouldn't do so in front of everybody. The fact that Belshazzar is coming out in front of everybody and eating with them and drinking with them is something that's, that's uncommon. Um, not in the sense that it would never happen, but in the sense that because it did happen, something special is happening here. Or at least something to take note of. So what, what it, uh, verse 2 says that he tasted the wine. And actually, one of the things that a lot of my research has... has uh, has said as well is that when it says that he's tasting the wine, that those words, those Aramaic words that are being used there are actually talking about it's, it's beginning to circulate, that uh, he is getting drunk, essentially. He's getting wasted. And in addition to that, that a lot of people think he must have been getting drunk because to bring out these sacred objects of another God and use them in the way that he's using them 
even for Babylonian, even for Babylonians, would have been off limits. They would have thought that there would be a curse that came along with them. Two things happened typically when the Babylonians would plunder an empire next to them or a nation next to them. They would take their gods and they would do one of two things usually. They would melt down their gods into the gold or silver or whatever they were, and then they would just use them for, you know, for wealth. The other thing is that if they respected their gods, they, wouldn't, they would just keep them safe. They would put them in a safe place, and they wouldn't really use them because they didn't want to offend that god and therefore bring upon them um, you know, any sort of wrath or, or undoing. And so the fact that Belshazzar is now, not only is he sitting in front of everybody with getting drunk, but he's using these goblets, that, these vessels that were taken from uh, the Israelites when he went and, ran, and when Nebuchadnezzar had, had ransacked the nation and brought them into the city. So, a uh, couple things within that. Um, even when it says, um, well, I should, I should clarify this too. When it's talking about Belshazzar being at the table, when it's talking about these vessels and he's drinking and he's, and he's doing all that, and it says that, I want to say, let's see. Well, what does your verse 1 say? Who has an NIV? Anybody have NIV in here? What does verse 1 say? Yes, verse 1 of chapter 5. King Belshazzar gave great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. Yes, and so even that with, um, everything I read uh, basically said that it, it should really be before. And so what is really what I want to emphasize here is ultimately what's happening is Belshazzar is putting himself in the commonplace. He's putting himself with these people that he's invited, but who else has he invited? He's invited the wives. He's invited the concubines, right? He's, he's invited the prestigious nobles. And when they come, they start to essentially throw this gigantic party. Essentially, that's what's happening. This, this gigantic feast is beginning to take place. And they start getting so drunk that most commentators believe that this is going to be a sensual party. That what's happening is something that is disturbing on all fronts. And so here, here's what's happening. Belshazzar, who's a prominent king, is putting himself in a place of commonality. He's using sacred objects and making them common. He's bringing in uh, all sorts of elite, um, exclusive people into this party, and they're doing um, unsacred things, right? They're doing things that ultimately are profaning. What we're seeing is a complete uh, dilution of holiness of what God intends for our life. And I think that it's really hard for us to grasp this idea of holiness, to be able to really understand the gravity of what Belshazzar's, of what's happening with Belshazzar. When we see the writing on the wall, which um, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but there's like a ton of sayings throughout the book of Daniel that like we use in common language. The writing on the wall is one of them. You know, the, we use that when we're like, the writing's on the wall. It's kind of like our destiny is, is we've kind of made our bed, now we have to lie in it. The, the, the destiny's been, been laid out, right? The point is what's happening is Belshazzar is having a feast and he's, and he's practicing all types of things that are ultimately profaning the sacred, the holiness of God. And when he has this, this when he sees this hand writing these words on the wall, he becomes extremely alarmed. 
Because what he begins to see is the miraculous again, over and over again, right? Over and over again through the book of Daniel, we see the miraculous take shape. And he sees this hand writing on the wall, and he knows that it is not going to be good for him. And it is not until the queen comes, this queen that, again, we'll talk about her identity in a second. When the queen comes, she says, I know of a man who can interpret these signs. I know somebody who will be able to tell you what these words mean. But I want to talk about the holiness of God first. first. Um, the, I think the best story that we have in, well, there's two great stories we have in Scripture. The first one um, that I would point to is when David wants to move the Ark of the Covenant back to uh, the, the city, the city of Jerusalem. Because he's going to make that the capital. He's going to make that the place where he, he, he allows the presence and the power of God to dwell. Do you guys remember that story at all? So what happens is he brings it and the, the priests are bringing it. They're bringing it on a cart. And they should not be bringing it on a cart. There are very specific rules for how that ark is supposed to be transported. And it's not supposed to be used with a cart. It's supposed to be carried in a very specific way by priests in a very specific fashion. And that cart bumps, right? And that ark begins to fall. And that priest, that holy man, reaches out to stabilize the ark. And what happens? He dies. He dies. He touches it and he dies. This to me describes so well this idea of holiness. And here's why. Because I struggled with this for a long time. I don't know if you, I mean, there are things in the Bible that we read that we're like, I don't understand this. And sometimes we just have to say, God, I trust you because you are the, you're the God of wisdom. But I don't understand this. Why did this guy have to die? You know, it just, it, it just, I always struggle with that. Like, why? This guy was just trying to stabilize the thing. He seems like he's a pretty good guy. You know, he's a priest, so he's at least kind of nice, I'm sure. And he's just trying to stabilize your precious artifact, your sacred, uh, your sacred vessel, right? Why did he have to die? And actually, it was Tim Keller that just, um, really, I guess the Holy Spirit used to help me understand this well. And so my hope is that it will help you guys understand it too. This is what he says. He says, if you look at the book of Leviticus, that with, throughout the whole book, it is just a mess. All right. How, how many of you guys have read through the book of Leviticus? That's a hard book to read through. Okay. It's just so many details. It's so many rules. It's so many recipes. Right. I mean, it is just over and over again. It seems like this redundant uh, movement of blood and sacrifice and these kind of weird rituals that are happening. And. What Tim Keller says is we can often get lost in those details when we're reading the book. But what he says is if you just take a step back, if you just take a step back from a 30,000 foot view and you look at the book of Leviticus, this is what the book of Leviticus is saying. Your sin matters. Your sin matters. Your sin matters. And what the problem is that our sin matters so much that it requires so much of us to be able to wash it clean and enter into the sacred, to actually experience the holy God. That's how much our sin matters. And this is what uh, Tim Keller says went wrong with this ark and with the priest, is that the priest thought that it would have been better for a man like him to touch that ark than for it to hit the ground. And it was in that moment that the priest forgot how sinful he really was. How sinful he really was. This is the holiness of God. It would have been better for it to fall on the ground 
than if for, to touch a people like us. And so what David does, he goes away sad. He doesn't know what to do. And he says, how can a man like me ever allow, how can, how can a God like that ever allow a man like me to, to be in his presence? And so he just leaves. He leaves the ark sad. He goes back. But then what happens? Three months later, they see that the ark, where they had left the ark, the man's house becomes blessed. And they're like, wow, this is amazing. Daniel starts to just, I mean, he becomes so excited. He's like, all right, let's go get it. Why? Because he not only saw that God had forgiven him, but that God desired him. And so he goes back and he takes the ark to the city. And this is when he dances like crazy. And you probably know this story, right? He becomes undignified. He becomes dancing around so ridiculously because of the amazing, amazing grace that he has experienced in this holy, precious God. That he begins to completely become undignified, humiliated before everybody because it actually exalts and glorifies the status of the one whom he serves. So much so that his wife looks upon it and is disgusted by it. And he says, you don't understand this God that I serve. You don't understand this God that I serve. This is what we're talking about, the holiness of God. And the second, the second most powerful event that shows the holiness of God is the cross. Jesus, like the ark, was the power and the presence of God incarnate. And we put our hands all over him. And instead of us dying, he did. And three days later, we saw a blessing that included us. The holiness of God is a powerful thing that we so often don't understand. We take it for granted. But we cannot miss this fact that what Belshazzar is doing, what he's participating in, is something so disgusting that God has enough of it. Because he's not just taking a party and using cups. He's taking the sacred. He's taking what was set apart And he's using it for a purpose, for his own purpose, for his own glory, and for his own sin. And God will simply not allow that. Now, I also want to point you back toward one of the things we talked about in chapter 1. That the vessels, those holy vessels that they had taken were not just the goblets, not just the artifacts of the temple. It was the people themselves. And I think that at some level, we have finally gotten to the point where all the prophecies of God, everything that God had prophesied through the prophet Jeremiah and Ezekiel, through Hosea, is finally coming true. That Babylon is finally going to fall. That they had served their purpose in the best way possible. But now it was time for them to receive their own punishment for the wickedness that they had done. And we see again this motif throughout this entire book. God is in control. And when we begin to see this idea played out, even in the midst of Babylon, who is a, an unholy city being used for holy purposes, we can never forget that even in the midst of evil being used for good, God will still bring justice to evil. God will still bring justice to this, this wickedness. Part of what actually, um, I think, emphasizes this even more is, uh, look at what it says in verse 4. Of chapter 5, it says, They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. What did Israel go into exile for? Idolatry. 
The very thing that they were pushed into punishment for is now the very thing that the Babylonians are, are exalting. And the Babylonians now are going to reap that, that uh, false exaltation um, through the power of God. So, a couple things. Um, first off, it's interesting that Belshazzar calls for astrologers. That he doesn't call for Daniel. Did you guys notice that? A couple reasons people think why this might have been. If Nabonidus wasn't um, a part of Nebuchadnezzar's line, usually what happens, in, in general, when a king comes into power, but especially one that's outside of the family lineage, is what happens is that king will come in and he'll replace all the officials. And he will put in his own uh, people that ultimately he wants to be influencers. And that will also have his back, right? Well, what a lot of um, commentators believe is that for Belshazzar especially, he may have known of Daniel, but he certainly didn't rely on Daniel. In fact, he pro- I mean, he did know of Daniel, uh, but he didn't rely on him at all. And it could have been pro- possibly because of this, uh, this idea that ultimately he was getting rid of the officials that Nebuchadnezzar once used and putting in his own, or at least using the ones that Nabonidus would have put in perhaps. So that's, that's part of it. Um, and then, in a different, and then additional, additionally to that, is that this chapter is very similar. It's very, very similar to uh, what the episodes that we've kind of been seeing throughout the book. I don't know if you guys have noticed that. Especially chapter 2, um, when Nebuchadnezzar has a similar frightening dream and he calls for these people. And I think that in some ways what we're seeing within Belshazzar's life is almost a recapitulation of uh, a retelling of Nebuchadnezzar's life all in one chapter. But there's kind of a juxtaposition, whereas with Nebuchadnezzar, we see this redemptive narrative coming through. And with Belshazzar, we're kind of seeing the opposite of that. But it's all kind of pushed into this one chapter. So, a couple interesting things. So, let's talk about this queen a little bit. Who is she? Uh, we don't know. <laughs> I feel like that's, that's a lot of it. We just don't know. We don't, Daniel doesn't give us all the details. And so, again, what history does is it tries to make sense of the pieces. It tries to put together the parts. Right? So here's a couple ideas of who, of who this woman could have been. It could have been, um, well, I guess it could have been Belshazzar's wife. Uh, most people don't think that it was, simply because um, Daniel has already stated that the wives and concubines are already in attendance. And so it would be weird for now at this moment to, for somebody to go and get the queen um, when, when this writing happens on the wall because they, it's, you know, they, would, they thought that she would have already have been there. So, but it is possible that it's still her. You know, maybe she just was out. Maybe she was in the bathroom at that time. You know? And they were like, hey, get the queen. You know, who knows? Uh, the other thing is that it could have been Nebuchadnezzar's wife. That's also uh, a possibility too because Nebuchadnezzar, um, he hasn't, he, he has died. Oh, I should have mentioned this too. Uh, when Daniel... When Daniel is writing this, most people believe he's about um, 70 years old. That there's been, I don't know if you guys remember what we talked about him being about 50-ish um, in the last chapter. And so if we look at the math of it all, going from Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the end of his reign, into uh, Nabonidus, um, it's about 23 years, I think, um, between that. Is that right? Do you, guys, do you guys have that in front of you? Is that right? I think it's something like that. So he's, he, he's been dead for about 23 years at least. Um, and so there's a possibility that um, for sure Nabonidus had a, an affiliation with Nebuchadnezzar, but he's been dead for a little while. But if, if, if uh, Nebuchadnezzar died 23 years you know, earlier, then that would mean that 
um, that that transition piece would be like Daniel would probably be in his 70s around that, that time. So he's an older guy as well, which kind of also contributes to the fact that maybe that's part of why Belshazzar didn't ask for him. He's like, that guy's old. He's on his way out. You know, who knows? Uh, but that's another, another interesting point. So, but uh, people think that it could have been Nebuchadnezzar's wife. Um, she's mentioned in a couple of different historical texts that we have. Her name's Nita Chris. Uh, and then also, some people think that it was um, Nabonidus' wife, which I think probably makes the most sense of it. Um, it was probably that she was in Babylon at the time. Um, but we don't, again, we don't know. The point is that this woman, at least in some capacity, has a, has a familiarity with Daniel. She knows who Daniel was. She knows what Daniel accomplished. And so, when this happens, she knows who to call. Which, again, we see a parallel of in chapter 2. Because who comes and gets uh, Daniel? In chapter 2 is someone similar, an, a, a high official. His name's Arioch, if you guys remember him. And so there is a parallel there kind of between the fact that someone has to find this person to come and interpret the dream. Again, it seems like a somewhat of a retelling. So, did you have a question? Uh, yeah, I assumed that the queen was Belzazar's mother. When that been yeah, that's also a possibility, um, that it was Belshazzar's mother. Um, I'm trying to think. Oh, yes, yeah, which that is Nabonidus' wife. So that's why I think that probably makes the most sense because Nabonidus was technically the king at the time, although he was one that was, apart, well, that was separate. So. Why didn't they tell us that? I mean, we were just uh, King Neb down here in the end of chapter 4. And then, all of and then we jump. Yeah, um, that's a lot. I know, thank you for explaining that there's been several kings since yeah. then, but... I think it's because Daniel's trying to tell us a specific story that doesn't that doesn't is not necessary to include the historical details of. You know, he's he's uh, certainly the historical details are helpful, and like I said, the fact that he even mentions Belshazzar is is became meaningful whether he wanted it to or not um, for us. But actually, what's very helpful is that. Um, uh, he's not trying to, to, to paint a vivid historical picture. He's trying to paint a theological one. And what he's saying about God um, in general is his point. So that's, that would be why, I would say. But we don't really know exactly why he's mentioning and doesn't mention certain people. So You had your hand up. Do you have a question? Well, it, it states in the Ryrie that it could be the daughter. Oh, Oh, okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, I hadn't re- I hadn't read that one. So that's yeah, that's a possibility. Could have been his daughter. Yeah. NLB calls her Queen Mother. Yes, uh, there are some translations that that interpret it Queen Mother. Um, yeah. So how many of you guys have Queen Mother in your translations? Yeah. How many of you guys just have Queen? Okay. Yeah. So there's that. There is a uh, an interpretive framework going on there. But um, yeah, what we know, like I said. Um, we don't really know who it is, but we can kind of make some guesses. At the end of the day, it probably doesn't really matter that much, but it's still interesting to know, so might as well talk about it. Roberta, you were going to say something? You were reading Josephus? Dang, girl. That's, that's good. That's like, yeah, all right. <laughs> Yes, that's Josephus' interpretation of it. Is uh, that it, so? Grandmother might have been Nebuchadnezzar's wife. 
Um, and that could have been the connection there between the son. Because Josephus does think that in terms of the son, him re- referring to Nebuchadnezzar as father and, and Belshazzar as son, that there's a, a lineage, an actual family lineage. Which again, like I said, there could be. You know, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's wife, we know, didn't... Um, well, actually, one of the things that we know is it probably wasn't Nebuchadnezzar's wife um, because she had died um, recent, like with 547 B.C. Um, and so that's why we tend to move away from that. But, I mean, it's possible. Like I said, history, it's, we're, we're doing the best we can with the, with, the, with the documents we have. And sometimes we forget that the documents aren't always right. You know, they are, they're being told they're not infallible documents. They're not inerrant. They're not, they are simply telling the story from a, a bias. And so literally we can compare Barosus and Herodotus and Xenophon and they're all telling the same story. And Josephus, they're all telling the same story, but we, we have different details about it. And so it's really hard to know, it's really hard to know, you know, um, in terms of trying to piece it all together in a way that makes complete sense. Because um, Daniel doesn't tell us who the queen was, so... And I have forgotten to, to re-say those questions every single time. So sorry for people who listen to the podcast. And for everybody else in the room who can't hear people. <laughs> uh, yes? I listened to your podcast from last Wednesday, and I actually could hear most of the questions. Oh, you could? That's good to know. Yeah. That's good to know. A few I couldn't, but most of them I could. Okay. Good. She said she could hear most of the questions on the podcast. So, <laughs> All right, guys. Do um, you guys have any questions about that part? Sweet. All right, we'll move on. We will go to Daniel five thirteen through 24. So, this is what it says. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be, third, shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make, to, make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. You have not honored. So, 
First thing you may notice uh, within this passage is that he refers to him as Daniel, which is interesting. Uh, some people believe that that's probably because Belteshazzar, which is Daniel's given name uh, from Nebuchadnezzar, is really close to Belshazzar. And so it's possible that Belshazzar didn't want to use that name because of how closely it associated with his own. But in addition to that, um, he, uh, it was also read that, or I've also read that um, he wanted to make sure that this was in fact the guy that the Queen Mother was talking about. Now, I don't know why it wouldn't be, but that's another speculation that perhaps he was just trying to confirm for sure this is the guy that did all that interpretive work before. So I'm going to have him come in. I'm going to have him see that ultimately um, this is the guy who I know is going to be able to do it again. So, interesting. Another thing in verse 14, if you notice, Belshazzar says, I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you. Now notice he omits one word. You guys notice which one he omits? He leaves out. It's holy. When the queen is referring to Daniel, she is referring to him saying that he has the spirit of the holy gods. Now if you guys remember, that's something we talked about last week, is that um, Nebuchadnezzar also said that he had the spirit of the holy god in him. And I took the interpretation to be more um, specific, that actually what he was saying was the spirit of the holy God, because that language that's being used there is kind of fuzzy. We're not exactly sure whether he was saying gods or God. You may have that in your Bible, where it says, well, we don't really know. This is another possible interpretation or translation. Um, Now, I think perhaps that if this is Nabonidus' wife, or perhaps even Nebuchadnezzar's wife, we don't know who the queen mother is, but if she knew who Daniel was, at least in the the wisdom that she displayed, perhaps she also acknowledged that what what Daniel had was a spirit of the holy God. It's possible. It's possible. Um, It also could be that this is why Belshazzar omits the word holy before that preface, before that word, because he's saying that you have a spirit of a God instead of a holy God and kind of making it more, um, less like that. But it's also possible that this is just the spirit of gods. It's also possible that there's still a polytheistic understanding here. Um, we don't, we're not quite sure, but regardless of the fact, Belshazzar omitting this idea of holiness is, uh, makes sense, right? For everything that we just talked about. He's completely trying to divorce himself from the fact that he has essentially profaned the holiness of every sacred object that he has just, or every, even the event that he's just been a part of. And so for him to divorce himself from this fact that Daniel has within him not just the spirit of a God, but the, a holy God, one that is set apart, one that is sacred, uh, one that exists within the presence of something completely powerful and wise that we've been talking about, right? He just says, well, you have a spirit of a God. And so he reduces the God to a more polytheistic understanding, even if it doesn't mean gods or God. That absence of holy uh, becomes more meaningful. In verse 16, um, Belshazzar also kind of expresses some um, uncertainty, I guess you could say, in whether or not Daniel can really perform what the queen has said. He says, Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation. Um, 
But I've heard that you can give interpretations to solve problems. Oh, it's not in verse 15. Did I say? Oh, no, I said 16. Now, if you can read the writing. Now, if you can read the writing. Now, if you can read the writing. There's still some doubt there about whether Daniel has the ability to, um, to really do this. Despite all of the accolades that the queen has, has showered upon Daniel. Despite him asking if he, this really is the guy. He still has this hesitancy. I don't know if you can actually do this. You know, he's still downplaying the power of the God that Daniel serves. And ultimately, he offers Daniel rewards, right? These marvelous rewards that he offered to the guys who came before him. But Daniel completely rejects them. And we don't know exactly why, but it makes sense that if Belshazzar dies on this night, and ultimately um, the kingdom's given over to the Medo-Persian Empire, that it would make a whole lot of sense why Daniel wouldn't want to accept the bribe, right? Because then he would almost be associated with that kingdom in some capacity. But also, I think more than anything is that he doesn't want to look like what he has is being bought. That this king is not just paying a price for the man of God to perform an action. Wisdom of God is not a consumer good. There's no amount that we can pay for it or earn it. It's simply the grace of God that allows us to experience it. And so for Daniel to reject these gifts, these accolades... What he's essentially saying is, I'm going to tell you what it means, but it's not because you paid for it. It's not because you did anything for it. It's because I'm going to tell you the revelation that God has for you, which is that what we'll find out, you've been measured and weighed and your kingdom's done. But we'll find that out in a second, right? So, um, in verse 18 through 19, he kind of goes through this big, long uh, really a reflection of Nebuchadnezzar, right? If this is kind of a retelling of Nebuchadnezzar's story in the life of Belshazzar, he's using that in a kind of a short passage here to say, this is what ne- happened in Nebuchadnezzar. But Nebuchadnezzar, instead of having all this power, all this glory, all this majesty, instead of exalting himself, he finally turned to Yahweh. And what Daniel's saying is, you knew all of this. Even if you didn't see it firsthand, which we think that he probably did, even if you didn't see it firsthand, you had a knowledge of what Yahweh has done. And yet you have rejected that knowledge. You have somehow believed, this is, what, this is really what's happening, is that Belshazzar has looked at Nebuchadnezzar, who is by far the greatest king of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, who by far has reigned longer than any other king who built more majestic, beautiful things, whose kingdom expanded far greater than any other king in the Neo-Babylonian Empire. And he's somehow saying, I am still better. Belshazzar, someone we know who is at least only a co-regent, is somehow still making Nebuchadnezzar less than himself. That's what Daniel's saying. Is although you've seen the great power of a king, you've looked at that king, and you have decided that his life, his example, the God he turned to is still not good enough. And now you're trying to exalt yourself. That there's a pride now that you haven't dealt with. And ultimately, what he says is, Belshazzar knew of Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation, and yet he himself did not humble himself. What now will God do to Belshazzar? What now will he do? A um, couple things within that. I think first off, what we are reminded of, even through that, is... As Belshazzar looks upon a king and he sees his greatness and majesty, it should humble a man knowing that he has not acquired that much. And I think that for us, 
um, I want to, like I said, I'm always want to come back to the pastoral side. If this is a book that we just get information from, it's not, it's not, like, it's not the book that uh, it needs to be. God wants to not just tell us about Himself, but also move in us through through this book. And that ultimately, the more we can grasp, the more that we can actually apply the word, the word, the more it becomes a sharp sword that makes a difference. And one of the things we learn from Belshazzar's life is that we really have to have our eyes on the true king. And if you look at our true king, which is Jesus, who in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, humbled himself, how at any point could we begin to set ourselves up as our own gods of our own lives? How could we ever begin to have pride on ourselves knowing that the greatest figure came and washed the dirty feet of his closest friends and desires to do that for you too? How then can we look at a story like that and begin to turn away from that God, that king? Daniel's, uh, really his, his, his anger towards Nebuchadnezzar or uh, really his, his outburst is one that we should feel, feel as well. And because... Ultimately, what, we've, what we're saying is or Belshazzar has experienced the power of God. He's experienced the stories of God. And yet he still has decided that these things aren't good enough for him. And how many times have we told ourselves, I mean, at least I myself have told myself this. I've heard other people tell me this. If God would just, do, just show me a sign. If I, if I saw the healings that God did in the Bible, I would not have acted like that, right? If I saw the things that God did, I, I think if God would just show me a, a sign that was so vivid... But I think that the story of, of Lazarus and the beggar is most telling. Is when what happens is Jesus is telling this story, and he, what he says is that um, Lazarus goes to hell and the beggar goes to heaven. And or, I'm sorry, it's the other way around. <laughs> Lazarus is the um, is the beggar, and the rich man goes to hell. And Lazarus begins to say, or the beggar be, or the rich man begins to say, if you would just tell Lazarus to come down and just allow him to soothe my pain, right? And Jesus is like. Are you kidding me? Or in this case, it's God. It's God's like, are you kidding me? You have essentially made this man beg outside of your gate forever. And now, you, now even in eternity, now even while you are suffering, you still are trying to get him to serve you. Are you kidding me? And then what happens is, is he says, okay, fine. Will, will you at least go tell my brothers? Will you at least go tell my family about this? Because if my family is able to see that what I'm going through and know about it, if you, if you were to go to tell them, then they would believe you. And he says, are you kidding me? No. If they don't believe the prophets and the law, if they don't believe the scripture that's been given to them, they are not going to believe anything. They'll justify whatever they need to in their mind. Well, it was just a trick of the, trick of the, uh, an illusion. It was just a, a trick that was played. It was just my mind. I, I don't know. It must have been a dream. And we begin to justify those things. The point of where we're at is that we can look upon a great God a great king who has humbled himself and remind ourselves constantly every single day that this world is not about us. That what he calls us to is to maintain the sacred, maintain the holy. So what about this can we, can we talk about? You guys have any questions about this part? Sweet. All right. Cool. Well, onward we go. And we'll finish it up here. In Daniel five twenty five through 31. This is what it says. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and parsin. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, 
you have been weighed in the balance in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. A um, couple things within this. Before we get into the writing, the scripture, notice that he becomes the third ruler in the kingdom. Did you guys notice that? Why would he become the third ruler in the kingdom? Because Nabonidus is number one. Belshazzar is number two. Daniel gets to be number three. He doesn't offer him the second place in the kingdom because he can't. That's his place. So again, more affirmation that Belshazzar and Nabonidus, this is, this is something that Daniel knows about, but the king that he's experiencing is not the one that's absent, that's been absent for ten years. The one he's experiencing is Belshazzar. And he makes it clear implicitly through uh, kind of pulling our attention back to the fact that what Belshazzar is offering him is to be third in the kingdom. Third in the kingdom. So let's look at these, uh, let's look at the message. Now, a lot of my research said that most of the people, most of the enchanters, um, if they were words, if they were actually these words, that they would have known what they meant. So it's possible, some people think that it's possible they weren't. There's an old rabbi tradition that maybe they were written vertically in a specific way that, that people would look at them, but they didn't understand their meaning. Uh, there's, there's a possibility that maybe they were using different types of um, symbols or um, you know, different types of letters that ultimately were, were saying the same thing, but saying it in a way that those other people couldn't have noticed. Um, and I think that ultimately, uh, I, can't, I think it, it might have been Longman who said this, um, that ultimately... Uh, when, we do, when we try to make those naturalistic um, understandings, part of that reason is that we're trying to take the miraculous out of it. But the reality is a hand wrote on the wall. <laughs> and what it wrote was, was this. Um, were, were, from what we understand, were these words. And I don't think there's really, there's really no reason to explain it outside of that. We don't know why. It's just speculation. So what we see is these words on the wall. And regardless, they don't understand their meaning. So maybe it's that they could read them, the words, but they just didn't know what they meant. Now, what's interesting about these words is they actually have two different meanings. Part of this is because we talked about this uh, in our first class, I believe, when we were talking about the Masoretic text. Um, when the Masoretic text came about, you guys remember what the Masoretic text is? All right, so the Masoretic text was the oldest set of manuscripts, the oldest set of Hebrew manuscripts that were the Old Testament. Those are the oldest ones we had up until the 1940s. Um, that, that was essentially how far we, we could go back um, until we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, that was also within that time period. We don't know exactly when, but vowel, vowel's pointings were developed. So what that means is, is that all we had were consonants. So if, you, if you're thinking of a language like ours, and all you have are consonants, it makes it really hard to know the words. Like my name would be spelled E-L-J-H. Right? So we don't know exactly how that's pronounced if that's all you see are the consonants. And that's true in pretty much any language, right? Unless you kind of, there's like a tradition about it that we all kind of have an understanding of how to pronounce the word. So that is true with the Hebrew language as well. When we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they didn't have vowel markings on them. So there's some, uh, so basically what that means is we're kind of using an understanding of the words, but also kind of guessing at 
the context, allowing the context to tell us what words they were probably using. And in addition to that, using the Masoretic text to see, okay, yeah, these make sense. They're, they're lining up pretty well. So a lot of people think that these words that were written, they didn't have vowels. And so there were two ways that they could have been used because of that. Because vowels also change how um, the word operates. So they could have been nouns. Or they could have been what some people believe are passive participles. Which are essentially a kind of verb. So just think verbs and nouns. So the idea is if they were nouns, what they could have been was um, a minus and a shekel. Right? You guys are you guys familiar with those types of currencies? They're old. Obviously, we don't. Uh, actually, they still use a shekel. I think in Israel. I can't remember. You remember? You were there with us, right? <laughs> yeah. I can't remember exactly. But anyways, um, so the minus, the shekel, and um, that the paris is uh, essentially what they believe to be a part. So they think that maybe that means half of a minus um, because the weight of these coins would have been um, at least of the minus would have been significantly heavier, heavier than a shekel. So I'm getting into these details. I hope you guys, I hope these aren't too super boring for you guys. But the point is that it could have been two different things, the nouns or the participles. So that could have ultimately led to confusion. But what Daniel does is he doesn't translate them as the nouns. He does it as the participles, which is the, the way, the measured, and you've been found wanting. Your kingdom is going to be divided, that part. And some people even believe that that Paris is actually playing off. It's a, it's a word. It's playing off of the Persian idea so that it's ultimately it's even pointing to the fact that it's going to be given over to the Medes and the Persians. So that's kind of what's happening there within the language, within when Daniel comes to interpret it. So why, the, why other people couldn't interpret it? Again, we don't know exactly. It could be that they could read the words, but they didn't actually know what they were referring to when it said measured weighed, you know, um, and, and parted. We don't really know. It could be that they saw them as nouns and they were like, meanness, shekel, what does that mean? You know, we're not really sure. But um, at least the way Daniel t- tends to interpret them is as those participles that you've that you've been found wanting, you know, that you've been ultimately weighed, and um, that now, because of your lack of, of, of uh, ultimately, what, what you lack has been, found, has been found through being on a scale. So what now is interesting about that, the scale aspect, so this would have believed, we're kind of, again, speculating a little bit, but it makes a lot of sense. What Herodotus and Xenophon tell us is that the, the kingdom of Babylon actually fell on October 12th, October 12th, 539. Okay? October 12th, 539. Now, you guys remember that these, they, they paid attention to astrology. All right? So they were all about it. Does anybody happen to know the, uh, the sign, the astrological sign for the month of October? Anybody? I didn't either. I had to look it up because I don't pay attention to that. But it's Libra. And the, scale, the scales are the symbol of that. The scales. So what some commentators believe is actually that God is embedding their own cultural symbols again. We kind of talked about that even before, that God's using their own cultural symbols to kind of use this idea of something being weighed, that even in the midst of that, God's using this language, these cultural symbols to say, you know what this means. It is the month of the Libra. It is the month of the scales. And you have been weighed, you have been measured, and you have been found wanting. And tonight, your kingdom will be ripped from you. You will die. And what it says is uh, what Herodotus and Xenophon actually report is that the day that Babylon fell, they were having a feast. Just like this one. Now, we are not for sure whether it is the exact same. But it sure seems like it probably was. If you have Daniel writing about it and then these other ancient historians as well. So, it's pretty interesting stuff, what's going on. 
And what uh, I think another important part of it is as well is the idea ultimately that with even within this this kingdom being ripped apart, it pairs together the Medes and the Persians. And that's going to become really important to when we get into the visions. So when we get into the visions, uh, there's a lot of different interpretations, speculations. You know, even when we talked about the statue, right? And we talked about the gold head and the silver chest and the the legs and the um, feet, right? They were all different kingdoms. And the head was Nebuchadnezzar. And we know that the rock was ultimately the Christ, the kingdom of God. And it turned from a rock into a mountain. Those are the only kingdoms we know. And so we begin to speculate on what those other kingdoms might be. And some people believe that, um, if, if you remember that, it was the Medes, then the Persians. And some people believe that it was, and then the Greeks. And then some other people believe that it was the, Me- the Medo-Persian Empire, then the, then the Greek Empire, then the Roman Empire. So we have some differences of interpretation. Part of what helps the, the Roman interpretation, with Rome being the, that, that final beast, which is the one that I tend to lean towards. Again, it didn't, I don't think it matters necessarily at all which one you, you lean toward, but I tend to lean toward it being the Roman one. So does tradition, uh, historically speaking, over the last 2,000 years. That's what Christian interpretation has said. I tend to think that if people said it for the last 2,000 years, it's probably true. Uh, we're not going to really find new interpretations, I tend to think. so. Um, but the point is that this is, a, this is a helpful part of understanding this. It's pairing these together, and it will do that throughout the book. It'll do that throughout the book. It'll pair the Medo-Persians together. So even though we see Darius the Mede in chapter 6, and then Cyrus will come in and, and eventually, when we see that, they're separate. But if you look at every time it's mentioned, they're almost always together. And even when you see um, the, the, the ram in chapter 8, I believe, um, it, it actually, Daniel actually refers to that as being the horns on the ram being the Medes and the Persians. So there's some, some evidence there. And again, we'll jump into it. We'll get there. You guys are probably like, I don't even know what you're talking about right now. But we'll get there. I just wanted to kind of uh, make a little highlight there. So at the end of the day, here's what is most important about how this text ends. Okay? The Babylonian Empire is gone. It's destroyed. That's the most important thing. A king took the most holy sacred objects and he profaned them. And he, and really all the people of Israel who had been taken into exile for punishment, that, that season is, is coming to a close. And for a long time, the prophets had prophesied about this day when Babylon would finally get their justice, when Babylon would finally fall. And so what I want to read for you is Jeremiah 51, 54. Just kind of the end of this. And I want you to remember the fact that what we're reading when we see Babylon fall like this is the hope of thousands of people. This is the hope of a people who are desperate to go back to the place that they feel like God has given them. And this is what Jeremiah 51, 54 says. A voice, a cry from Babylon... The noise of great destruction from the land of the Chaldeans. For the Lord is laying Babylon waste and stilling her mighty voice. Their waves roar like many waters. The noise of their voice is raised. For a destroyer has come upon her, upon Babylon. Her warriors are taken. Their bows are broken in pieces. For the Lord is a God of recompense. He will surely repay. I will make drunk her officials. 
and her wise men. Sound familiar? Her governors, her commanders, and her warriors. They shall sleep a perpetual sleep and not wake, declares the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, The broad wall of Babylon shall be leveled to the ground, and her high gates shall be burned with fire. The peoples labor for nothing, and the nations weary themselves only by only for fire. Finally, Babylon has fallen. Babylon has fallen. And it will be Cyrus, who again, this Medo-Persian empire, that will send the Israelites back home. We are nearing the end of the exile for Israel. And that is why, after chapter 6, we will jump into the visions of what will come for all the people of God. Because as we end the exile, we look forward to a time uh, that God has prepared where the kingdom of God will expand like crazy over the entire earth. So, yeah, that's all I got for you guys tonight. I want to pray for you and then uh, you can head out. Father God, we are so thankful for your goodness and grace. Lord, we pray that you would continue to use words like this to refine us. God, that we wouldn't miss the details, that we wouldn't miss... uh, just these amazing, important things that you're doing, God, that we so easily gloss over. But Father, we pray that you would continue to allow us to see your wisdom and power. And again, Father, just to rest in your might, knowing, God, that regardless of the evil that exists in a world like ours, you are using it for good or exterminating it for justice. And Father, we're thankful, God, that uh, we can trust you for that. Lord, we love you. And it's in your son's name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.